Hello, readers. Coming up to my chat with science journalist Lee Cowart on Hurts So Good. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the science and medicine or humor category for episode number 111 with Erica Engelhaupt on gory details. This is Erica Engelhaupt, author of Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Lee Cowart is a science journalist who has just published her first book titled Hurt So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose. Lee, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Trey. How are you? I'm wonderful, thank you. So what was your goal with this book? Um, I just wanted to show people that masochism is actually very common and very normal, and that humans have been deliberately engaging in these kind of aversive acts on purpose for as long as we've been keeping records. It's not just a sex thing, and it's not that weird, and it's something that it's pretty fun to be curious about. And not only is it not just uh, more than a sex thing, often it doesn't have anything to do with sex either, correct? Correct. Nothing to do with it at all. So I guess for a baseline for everything else we'll be discussing over the next 30 minutes or so, what is pain? Pain? That's such a great question because people kind of think of pain as like, yeah, I know what pain is. Pain is when something hurts. But actually, it's this experience that is created by your brain fresh every single time. And it's 100% subjective. So when you get uh, some painful stimuli, your brain doesn't just look at the stimuli coming from your nerves. It thinks about where you are, what your emotional state is, your expectation, arousal level. Are you scared? Are you expecting it? What are you doing? And then based on all the information it has, it gives you a certain amount of pain, uh, the sensation, and the level of pain is not directly correlated to the level of potential damage. It's a really interesting thing. Yes, it is. And how are endorphins a big part of the chemical explanation for why pain can actually feel good? Oh, yeah, this is great. So endorphin is short for endogenous morphine, which means that the painkillers that your body releases are coming from inside the house at this point. And so endorphins can make you feel better. And they happen after you receive some painful stimuli, which is why after I ate the hottest pepper in the world... Once I was through the pain, I felt amazing. I felt really good for like several hours. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about your experience with the Carolina Reaper Pepper Pepper shortly. But uh, (laughs) you do a great job of exploring and detailing your own relationship with masochism throughout these pages while also getting into the science behind it all. Why is your time in ballet a necessary era when exploring your own masochism? Ballet is such a painful art form for so many of the people who practice it. Uh, standing in point shoes really, really hurts. Like, it, uh, you know, doctors say that it's enough to make someone who's uninitiated to it pass out. It's all of your body weight right on top of your big toe. And in order to do ballet, you need to overcome that. You have to want to kind of push through this aversive experience to 
to access the other rewards of dancing. And I think that it's really interesting that from a very young age, I started dancing when I was four, uh, but I was really fixated on this really like painful milestone that I was inching towards in my training. And then when I got my first pair of point shoes, I was so elated and it hurt so much. I had just the bloodiest little toes for years and I loved it. And that really got me thinking about why was I willing to put up with that? And why was that actually kind of part of the draw of ballet for me? Why is behavioral synchronicity also a part of the equation in helping you to understand your love for ballet? Oh, yeah. So uh, behavioral synchrony is great. It um, What that refers to is like the the way that humans will sync up their motions and behaviors. Um, they do this, we do this walking down the street, walking with a loved one, um, watching a movie, our bodies will sync up for social creatures. And there have been studies done that show that doing something in a group that is painful actually increases your pain tolerance. So doing something painful in a group makes you uh, feel better about being in the group, like you've struggled to be there. And so you think more highly of this group that you're in. And also it makes you feel closer to them and increases your pain tolerance. And they did this study in rowers. And when they rowed together, they could take more pain. And I just think that has really interesting implications for how we interact with each other in large groups, doing things like running into the ocean or ballet. And when you run into the ocean, you uh, certainly feel the cold of the water. You may even smell the, uh, the salt in the water. Your eyes may even burn from the water. We have sensory receptors all over our body that send electric signals to our brains to inform us of what's going on, including those things that hurt, obviously. What are nociceptors and how do they play into all of this? Oh, so nociceptor, the nociceptors are a kind of nerve fiber and they relay stimuli from the skin to your brain. And these, uh, these signals can come in very quickly and on myelinated nerve fibers, which help the message get there faster. That's like first pain uh, that tells you that your hand is stuck in a door. And then you have second pain, which comes in more slowly on nerve fibers without the protective myelin. And second pain tells you that your hand is broken. It's thuddier. It's not as sharp as the first one. And you can actually measure the differences in these signals. And it's the first step of alerting your brain to a potential danger to the body. It's the first step in the brain deciding that it's time to deliver the sensation of pain. Lee, why doesn't uh, why does pain not adapt to repetitive stimuli like is the case with other sensual cues? That's a really interesting thing. Um, with other senses, uh, say like smell, if you continue to smell the stimuli, it dims for you. Your brain has decided that uh, the smell of your coworkers' perfume is uh, predictable and regular, and we don't need to be hyper focused on it. Um, and with pain, uh, in continued pain, continued painful stimuli can actually ramp up the pain response. And it makes sense if you think about pain as a warning system. So your brain is trying to like assess for damage and keep you safe. 
So if something hurts and you don't tend to it, you don't make it stop, your brain's like, okay, well, let's turn up the volume on this. Let's Hmm. give it more attention because we want to make sure that the body stays safe. What do fMRI scans teach us about what happens in the brain of uh, when somebody is experiencing pain, when you're talking about somebody who is into masochism versus not? Sure. So fMRI looks at the amount of oxygen that's being used by different parts of the brain. And based on the amount of oxygen being used, we can deduce that there's more activity in that region. And so for this study that looked at masochists versus non-masochists, we saw that there were similar areas lighting up in how the pain was like showing up in the brain. Um, But there was additional activation in the brains of masochists. And so it looks like there is something either like the the context of expecting more value from the pain, memories associated, associated with pleasant experiences and pain. There's like, there's something else going on, but it's not necessarily a difference in how the pain itself is processed and expressed. Like the brains look fairly similar, except for this kind of additional activation in the brains of masochists. And again, that was a really small study. And I just want to say that it is whenever you are doing a study uh, for something sex related in uh, an fMRI machine, you are also kind of selecting for exhibitionism Mm. because the person has to be willing to get into an MRI machine or fMRI machine and look at adult materials. And so that kind of automatically shrinks your study pool and kind of selects for some exhibitionism in there too. So it's very difficult to study, (laughs) but very fun too. And it's great to be curious about stuff like this. Thank you for explaining the caveat there. Now, what do German flagellants in the Middle Ages have to do with the history of pain on purpose? Oh, yeah. So during the Black Plague, Um, There were groups of flagellants that kind of roamed the countryside, city to city, to atone for the sins of the masses. And it was, you know, God, the belief was that God was angry and people were very scared. And so people would come through towns and basically crash in people's cities during the plague, which was not always popular. And they would whip themselves publicly in this display of atonement and this kind of seeking absolution through this painful ritual. And the townspeople would go and they would watch. And some people would actually collect blood from the flagellants onto cloths and press it to their eyes, which would make any epidemiologist just shriek with horror because of the transmission that would occur at that point. Um, but it's it's interesting because it, it does speak to the link between pain and justice and penitence and how when we pain kind of can create additional meaning and brings us into the moment. So a lot of people will use pain uh, to they use the pain and justice model of penitence to kind of feel like they are doing something important 
to withstand and endure during times of hardship, like in the Black Plague with these flagellants. Is that why pain seems to make so much sense when we're talking about religious rituals, where they are often often asking their believers to go through something excruciating in the name of whatever deity? Mm Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the things that makes pain so interesting to me is that with it comes a certain immediacy. When when you do something that's really painful, say like an ice water polar plunge, <laughs> there isn't room in your brain for other things. <laughs> like <laughs> You cannot think about, you know, what you had for dinner last night or a date you're nervous about or the doom scrolling when every it feels like every cell in your body is just like screaming at you. And that kind of focus, that kind of stillness, that quiet brain with the involvement, like add in the involvement of endorphins and endurance and feeling like you've met your limits, it can create a really special moment of like almost stillness. It's just you and your body and that pain. And humans have such busy brains. And I think that there's something, for a lot of people, something sacred in finding that place and existing in it and then coming through it and knowing that you can and that you're capable. You did the 2020 Coney Island polar bear plunge. How long did it take you to warm up after you got out of the water? Oh, my God. Well, (laughs) (laughs) well, it actually took me... um, longer than it should have, because in a moment of adrenaline-soaked fury, when I got back out of the icy ocean, I decided that I didn't want to wait for any sort of cab to take me back to the hotel that I walked from. So with wet hair, on January 1st, after being in the ocean, I just like furiously stormed a mile back to where I was staying. <laughs> like just some, and people were like, oh my God, you got your hair wet. Oh no. And I'm just like flying down the street in my big red Santa coat, just like huffing and puffing and just filled with more adrenaline than I think I've ever had in my life. What, so, was, your, I, was your hair freezing by the end of that walk? Like literally yes. freezing? Oh my gosh. It, it like, it, it was getting a little like, just at the ends. And that was probably just from the wind chill. Cause I think by the time I was walking back, it was above freezing that day, the air temperature. Um, but yeah, when I got back to the hotel, everyone in the lobby just laughed at me. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to do it again, um, I would do it at like a little cabin that I could just pop right back into warmth and like hot cocoa and a big fluffy robe and uh, just immediately reheat. I would do it a little differently. Yeah. That is funny. Uh, As you alluded to a little bit ago, you did try a Carolina Reaper pepper, which is literally one of the hottest peppers on the planet. And at the root of any hot pepper is a chemical called, uh, capsaicin is that how you pronounce that capsaicin yeah uh what's capsaicin yeah what do people tend to get wrong about capsaicin uh which is obviously that chemical responsible for why peppers hurt so bad i love this question there's this misconception that capsaicin is like 
battery acid. Like it's somehow like actually dangerous. And if you're allergic to it, yes, uh, allergies to capsaicin are rare. And when capsaicin is in the mouth and we feel like our mouth is on fire, that's because this chemical is a heat mimic. So it interacts with the heat sensing nerve fibers in our mouths and tricks our brain into thinking that there's actually a really hot liquid in our mouths and that we are in danger. And so when I ate the Carolina Reaper pepper, which is the current world record holder for hottest pepper at 2.2 million Scoville units, Scoville heat units, uh, my brain was telling me that there was like hot coals, like real danger, hot coals in my mouth. Every alarm bell that could possibly ring in my face was ringing. And yet I was never in any danger. I specifically remember the spiciest thing I ever ate in my life. And it wasn't intentional like what you did. It was an accident at a Thai place here in Austin. It was this green bean dish that I'd eaten tens of times before, but I accidentally had one of the peppers in this green bean dish. And I literally had to walk around outside for like 10 to 15 minutes to feel normal again. But once I got there, mm-hmm. I went back to eating that green bean dish. So I guess that speaks to this idea that once you can get through the severe discomfort and pain, that there is something really pleasing on the other side of that. Yeah, it's fun. There is something I want to add about capsaicin. Oh, please do. Um, Because this is an important note for people who'd like to try hot peppers at home. When I ate mine, I chose to chew it up and spit it out. Because what I wanted was the like 40 minute hottest sensation in my mouth ever experience. If you swallow that much capsaicin, you can get something called the cap cramps. And I've seen someone get them. And it's just like the most painful cramping gastric distress you're because you have these similar nerves in the rest of your body. And there's nothing you can really do for the cap cramps except wait it out. And I have been in labor before and was not really interested in having like the lower GI version of the Reaper pepper. So uh, if you do swallow it, expect that there may be some gastric events later in the day for you and schedule accordingly. Yeah, well, and to be very blunt about it, you don't want your anus to feel like your mouth feels <laughs> for that 40 minutes, right? You have the, you have the same temperature receptors there, yes. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. well put. All right, uh, I'm going to apologize to this guy's family because there's no way I'm going to get his name right. But who is Richard Friedelin Joseph Ferrier? Kraft von Festenberg auf Fraunberg genannt von Ebbing. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing name? What a name. Uh, yes. So Richard von Kraft Ebbing was a researcher. Um, he wrote Psychopathia Sexualis. And this is kind of like the, the first real tome of sexual paraphilias. And this is where the word masochism comes from. He coined the term to name it after someone he actually kind of knew in real life and didn't tell he was going to do this, which is a little <laughs> shady, to be honest. Yeah, I, w- <laughs> I would be a little flustered by it. Um, 
So he knew that uh, Leopold von Saxer-Massach, um, who wrote the famous Venus and Furs, was actually in real life also into pain for pleasure. And he talked to people who knew him, he read his books, and then decided to name the sexual paraphilia um, of pain for, pain for pleasure after Leopold von Saxer-Massach. And that's how we got the word masochism. Wow. Love that background there. All right. One of my favorite sentences in the book is when you wrote, quote, Something I try to notice regularly, both in my work and my personal life, is how attention changes perception. What do you mean by this? Mm. So the way that we first pay attention to something or the way that we choose to pay attention to something really colors the rest of the context around that theme. It, it is the container within which we understand something. And I bring this up because if the first time you hear the word masochism and like the when this word came into being, it was related specifically to this one dude's sexual paraphilia, right? But over the years, we have kind of co-opted that word to mean all matter, all manner of pain on purpose. So colloquially today... That word means someone who, do, someone who does something painful consensually and on purpose, be it hot sauce or ballet or circus performers, you know. Uh, but since that word first came into existence as a sexual paraphilia, I think that there is a kind of cultural baggage attendant to the word that makes us a little squeamish about talking about it because its root is as a sexual taboo and Americans can be um, a little squirrely and uptight when it comes to things of that nature. And I think that kind of keeps the masochism taboo going today, even though, as we know now, masochism is actually really common. Absolutely. And for all masochists, there is a line where purposeful pain goes from productive to horrific in a very unironic way. This is obviously a very subjective line. So what is that line for you? Well, for me, it really depends on why I'm taking this action, my motivation for it, what I'm seeking to get out of it, and my mood. Do I, and does it feel compulsive? So in the past, when I was younger, I had a lot of very negative self-harming compulsions um, that really nearly did me in. And those actions were coming from a real place of despair and fury. So when I was, I was basically self-medicating with my body's own endorphin system in a way that felt compulsive and unavoidable. And it felt like I couldn't manage my life without it, even though engaging with it at that level was making my life itself unmanageable. Um, and over the years, I've taken just enormous steps away from that. And now today, I know that it would, it's a slippery slope, right? And I don't want to go down it. So it's very important for me to keep my painful experiences now in a place of play and pleasure and exploration and not damage and punishment and sorrow. 
You gave a sobering description of the eating disorder that you dealt with earlier in life. I'm assuming that's one of the things you're alluding to there. How much of that was mm-hmm. a result of the uh, toxic culture that exists in the world of ballet? All of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I imagine I, you know, I, I may have found other avenues to deal with other mental things that were going on, but the reality was is that. Um, I had very abusive ballet teachers when I was younger mm. and I was punished and, um, abused physically for the way that I looked. And so, you know, turning my internal fury into an eating disorder was how I was able to cope with the abuse that I was receiving by the people in charge of my development and care as a child. Mm. Very well said there. As somebody who will occasionally myself do something like intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding, uh, I'll go into the cryo chamber from time to time, I'll sit in a sauna for a long time, I at least anecdotally believe that discomfort can be really good for you. So for you, why is discomfort so good for us? I think that's such a great question, and I think there are so many different ways to look at it, which is probably why I think it's such a great question. (laughs) I think that, so uh, humans, like pain can create additional value and also enduring things and testing our limits is fun and can create a sense of like mastery and resiliency. And like, that feels good. The world is a scary place. And so feeling like you can trust yourself in situations that are difficult can be a really rewarding experience and kind of like can boost you up. Um, I spoke to Dr. Brock Bastian recently, and he is an expert in the book and he studies pain and guilt and pain and meaning. And he was talking about the ice bucket challenge from several years ago, maybe five years ago at this point, (laughs) where people poured buckets of ice water over their heads in order to raise money for charity. And His point was that he did not think that it would have taken off at all if the buckets had been full of confetti because that little extra bit of suffering demonstrates to people, even yourself, that what you're doing is worthwhile because if you have to work harder to do it, then you value the outcome more. You covered the Western States 100, which is an ultra marathon. I spoke with Dean Carnassus, who is one of the kings of that sport, uh, a couple months back. And it's just insane to think about what uh, those athletes put themselves through. Now, it doesn't take running 100 miles necessarily to experience a runner's high. What is happening, though, chemically with a runner's high? That's a great question. And they are unpacking it in really interesting ways because. On the one hand, you have your endorphin system, and there are some studies that say, yes, uh, running can gen- running a certain amount can generate endorphins, can make you feel better, you get the runner's high. Um, but they're also looking into the role that the endocannabinoid receptors play in this as well. And so it's like two, there's almost like two kinds of highs going on. And we're still kind of at the tip of the iceberg in understanding that. But the painful stimuli and like the stress of running can cause your body to give you some like feel good juice afterwards. And there seems to be an effect of if you do it 
more, you get more feel good juice. Hmm. So like when you first start out running, you may not get as much of a runner's high. It may, you may not get it at all, but if you keep at it and your body is like, you know, develop, developing a tolerance to running basically, then you can kind of train your body to do these cycles of exertion and rest and feeling better uh, with those chemicals. But we're still, there's still a lot we don't know about it. And I don't want to oversimplify, but there's some of that going on. And as a runner myself, uh, I definitely feel it and I like it. I like that answer. All right. Last question, Lee. Pain on Purpose is about testing oneself. You are an admitted masochist, so you inflict pain on yourself for that test, for that resilience. Do you have a favorite way to uh, enjoy your leisure time that has nothing to do with pain? And if so, what is it? <laughs> um, I, I am an avid gardener and baker. <laughs> I really like, I know. <laughs> it's really That's awesome. awesome. I, really I love like. that. Yeah, I love to grow food and then I love to make really beautiful food with it. And uh, it's a great source of joy. And yeah, I love to bake and I love to garden. <laughs> what's your favorite thing to grow in the garden? Tomatoes. And what's your favorite thing to bake? Is it cookies or is it something like a loaf of bread? Um, Probably, uh, yeah, I like to bake. Well, <laughs> I like to make caramel for things because it's dangerous, to be honest. <laughs> But I love to bake. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love to bake bread. I like to try to bake new things. I loved chemistry when I was in school. So being able to bring chemistry into the kitchen and fiddle with these recipes uh, has been, I just love it. And you get to, you get a snack afterwards. So that's that's right. With your love of uh, baking caramel, I'm kind of surprised your favorite thing to garden isn't cacti or something. I know. <laughs> I did grow Carolina Reaper peppers last year. Very well done. She is Lee yeah. Cowart, a science journalist who has just published her first book, and it is a good one. It's called Hurt So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Lee, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Thank you so much, Trey. It was great to be here. Join me next time when I speak with Mark Lawrence Schrod on Smashing the Liquor Machine, a global history of prohibition. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.